The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll be reading, uh, picking up where we left off last week, beginning at verse 3, reading through to verse 14. That's page 978 in your pew Bible. Ephesians 5 and verse 3. This is the word of God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen, and thanks be to God. For his word, let's pray. We confess, Lord God, without you we can do nothing. Our need for you is great indeed. We seek your face, we seek your word, we seek the blessing of your spirit. We ask you, Father, that you would prepare each of our hearts to receive this word with gladness. May its warnings and encouragements, even its threatenings, Lord God, be of grace unto us, your children, that we might know what pleases you, we might discern what is good and right and true, and give glory to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've been here in the last two weeks of Pastor Rockin's preaching as he's worked through uh, chapter 4 into chapter 5, you're at a distinct advantage with tonight's sermon because Paul is simply continuing his argument uh, about the Christian life. He's extending this idea of put on, put off. He's speaking to us about Christian living And we saw in the last few weeks how Paul has taught us to be imitators of God, uh, to put on the new self created in the image of God, uh, to conduct ourselves in a manner that pleases God and builds up 
the brethren. Paul is now explaining what that looks like, what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. Hence the somewhat odd title to the sermon, How Not to Live, How to Live. There's that putting off, that putting on character. Paul is beginning now to flesh out the doctrine of Christian living, of practical holiness, a conduct that pleases God and builds up the church. And he does so by providing examples, examples of how not to live and, on the contrary, how then they should live, how they should live a Christ-like and spirit-empowered life. And if we're asking the question, how should we then live and how should we not live, Paul identifies three areas of conduct, which we find in our text in verse 3, then in verse 6, and then in verse 11. Firstly, in verse 3, he's speaking to us about living a chaste life, avoiding sexual immorality. Secondly, in verse 6, he's teaching us that we ought to be discerning Christians, that we ought to avoid that deceptive speech that some are seeking to ensnare us with. And then in verse 11, he's going to teach us about practical righteousness and holiness, avoiding unfruitful works and rather exposing them. So living a chaste life, discerning truth and error, and practical righteousness. That's what's before us tonight. Let's consider then, firstly, his opening admonitions in verse 3 concerning living a chaste life, that is, avoiding all kinds of sexual immorality. Verse 3, remember the context of what uh, we are reading right now that Pastor Rockin has covered for us in the last two weeks. And remember Paul's greater context in the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been re- revealing the mystery of God's gracious salvation. Jew and Gentile alike saved both by grace so that they both become fellow heirs with Christ. And then there's a change in chapter 4, but Paul begins the practical admonition part of the gospel. He said, here's your salvation, now how here's how to live according to that salvation. Chapter 4, 1 to 16, he told them how they should conduct themselves. Chapter 4, verse 17, he speaks about that newness of life that they have been given in the gospel. And Pastor Rockham referred back to it last week, I believe. Look at verse 22 of of chapter 4, where he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You can see a parallel to what we're reading tonight. And verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off how you used to behave, put on how you should presently behave. Chapter 5 verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. 
Uh, Paul is saying the Christian is a new creature, a new creation in Christ, and as such there should be a family resemblance in terms of holiness and righteousness, not just between the Christian and his Lord, but the Christian and his Father be imitators of God. And so Paul tells us how in this section. Three parts. As we mentioned, verse 3, verse 6, verse 11, each dealing with a slightly different area of conduct. But it's interesting how he lays out his teaching in those three sections. He lays out his teaching by means of commands, mainly negative commands, do not, sometimes positive commands, do, but always by attaching a reason to each of the commands, attaching a subsequent reason to the negative and positive commands. Reflect back on what Pastor Rockin said last week. Paul is reminding us the commands of the Christian life, the should, the do, the do not, come to us in a context. And the context we've already said is this. God has saved you, dear Christian, chapters 1 through 3. Now live accordingly, chapters 4 through 6. But what Paul is also showing us here is that there is a following reason appended to his commands for Christian living. There's a reason appended at the end of those commands. Do this or don't do this because the wrath of God will be upon you if you live like the Gentiles. There is a judgment or a reason appended to each command he gives. And so we turn off in the first instance to verse 3, the issue of living a chaste life or avoiding sexual immorality. It goes without saying, does it not, that sexual immorality uh, obviously ought to be an activity that is shunned by a Christian in all of its forms. And remember the context in which Paul is writing. Greco-Roman culture was a radically sexualized culture. In my research, some are even suggesting that it's more sexualized, even more perverted than our present-time culture. It was just the norm That's the context in which Paul is writing, but sexual immorality and all purity or covetous must not even be named among you. Uh, These are real-time commands, real-life commands to people who are surrounded by all manner of sexual immorality, as assuredly we are also. Verse 3, there's a prohibition uh, on, on sexual immorality and uh, the speak, speaking of it. Verse 4 prohibits filthy sexual talk. And verse 5 is the reason appended to those prohibitions. The wrath of God rests on those who practice it. Look at verse 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, Paul says. Three areas of sexual immorality, he says, ought not even be named among you. They ought not be practiced in your midst. They ought not be named by you. He's talking about the whole gamut of sexual immorality, from acts of immorality to the motions of the heart, covetousness. 
these things ought not be found in our midst. They ought not be named. They ought not form any practice of Christians or of our discourse. And Paul reiterates that idea there in verse 4. Let no there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. These things should not be happening amongst you. Do not talk about them. Do not joke about them. Do not joke about these things as the world jokes about them. And that's mighty hard these days because we turn on any kind of media uh, and we have this front and center before our eyes in 95% of things that we can watch or read. That's how pervasive it is in our culture now. Paul's saying, have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with it. It ought not even be named amongst you. What does Paul say should happen instead? Instead of there being talk or activity of sexual immorality, he says, rather, they are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. He is saying, replace in our diet, if these things exist in our lives, replace those thoughts, words, and acts of immorality with daily, regular, individual, familial, and corporate thanksgiving. A thankful heart is one that will find it easier to avoid the sins Paul is speaking of. But we've said he appends a reason to these commands. Avoid sexual immorality in all its forms. He says, why? Verse 5 tells us the answer. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or and God. Paul is talking about those who practice habitually, by lifestyle, the kind of sexual immorality he's referring to. He's not talking, let's be clear, about those who perhaps struggle in one way or another with lust issues uh, or, or, or fight that sexual immorality in their lives and repent of it and perhaps fall. But as the proverb says, the righteous stands, gets up seven times. He is speaking about those whose lives are characterized by this kind of behavior. He's made that very clear in the previous chapter. He says, don't behave like the Gentiles do. Uh, Don't behave like you used to when you were the Gentiles. He's not saying there's no hope and no inheritance in the kingdom for those who earnestly are struggling and striving against it. He's saying for those who are given over to it, who practice such things as a lifestyle, there is no inheritance. And that is the message of the whole of the New Testament, the whole of Scripture, even to the last chapters of the Word of God, Revelation 21 verse 7, the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
They shall not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. Because their lives are lives of darkness and not lives that belong to the light. It's not just those really bad, sexually immoral people out there. He says it's those who harbor such things in their hearts. Covetousness, which is idolatry. It's of the same root. It's a call to each one of us tonight to reflect upon Paul's teaching, both in terms of the do and don't commands, and to reflect upon the foundation of the do and don't commands. Foundationally, we must say that Christ, his person and work in the giving of the Spirit, they are the foundation of the do and don't commands of Scripture. William Hendrickson writes this, Christ, he alone supplies the example, motive, and power to overcome sin. The example, the motive, and power to overcome sin. The example is obvious. He was sinless. There's your example. The motive, well, Paul has said, replace sexual immorality in your life with thanksgiving. We confessed it in our affirmation of faith that we owe God a life of thankful obedience because Christ has shed his own blood for us. Yes, example and motive are clear. But so in Scripture, friends, is the power of Christ residing in the Christian by which we might individually overcome individual sins. The power of Christ. Scripture tells us that at Christ's death and at his resurrection, mystically and spiritually, the Christian was right there with him. Romans 6. We're buried with him. We're raised with him in baptism. That is to say, when he died at the cross in us, who have yet to be born, the power of sin was broken in us. And we were granted to be raised there and then at the cross of Christ unto newness of life, even before we've been born. The power of sin has been broken in the Christian. Now, that's not to say it is no power. It's still a power. Paul laments that power in Romans 7, that principle or seed that resides within him that he's fighting against. But the actual power of domination of sin over the Christian is broken. And that's good news for the Christian. We need no longer give in to sin as once we did when we were slaves to it. The work of Christ has delivered us from bondage and slavery to sin. Isn't that remarkable? He's broken that power. He's given us new power to obey, given us new abilities to honor him in holy living. And even more than that, by the Spirit's work, Christ has given us new desires so that we no longer desire as we once used to those things which ensnared us previously. We've been given new desires 
And those desires are changing all the time throughout all of our life, guided as they are by the might and power of the Holy Spirit of truth. And friends, the great lesson for us is the more we know of these foundational truths, who Christ is, what he has done for us and in us, the more we know of him, the easier it is to fight sin the better equipped we are to fight sin. The great Puritan John Owen once said the reason why he struggled with sin so much was this. He said, I'm unaccustomed with my privileges in Christ. I think that's staggering. John Owen would say that, which of course is true. He's a great man, but he's still a man. The best of men are men at best. We struggle in sin so often because we don't know how great our privilege in the Savior is. It's a call to us not only to obey the do's and don'ts, certainly do that, but obey them in the power of the risen and ascended Christ, who when he ascended on high, he gave his spirit to his church implanted his spirit within you, dear Christian, that you might fight the good fight. Know your Lord's work more and more. That's your great challenge in life. Not to say no to sin more and more, though that's a great challenge. Your greatest challenge is know your privilege. Know what's been done in you. Know what's been done for you. And live a thankful life accordingly. But not only that, does Paul speak of sexual immorality? He speaks also in verse 6 of deceptive speech. He says Christians ought to be discerning the truth, discerning the truth and not yielding to deceptive speech. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Now, he's not saying that Christians shouldn't speak with deceptive speech. That's obviously a truth. He is saying, do not give credence, do not give room in your life to the kind of deceptive speech that he is thinking of. Now, consider the Ephesians, the environment they live in, and think about our environment in which we also live. The Ephesians lived in an age of a multiplicity of hostile philosophies of every sort and of every kind. Not just outside the church, they had to do battle with heresies and trials within the church. Paul speaks in verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness. They were darkness. They dwelt in darkness. They loved darkness. They were surrounded by the lies and deceptions of darkness. But now, he says, you are shining lights. You are light." In the Lord. The Christian and the church cannot be a light in the Lord if it's listening to the world. The Christian cannot be a light and discern all these falsehoods if we're giving credence in our own lives to what the world is saying. The sad reality is that the church and all of us of Christians have done this throughout the ages. It's just the reality. 
even without knowing it. We're not always conscious we are doing it. We can still do it. Paul says, don't be deceived, verse 6, with empty words. Those empty words, you can read any philosophy or doctrine that would take away from the truth of God. What was the church dealing with from within at this time? About this time, we had the Galatian heresy denying the gospel. We had the Colossian heresy. In the next few centuries, the fifth century, we'd have Arius who denied that Christ was God. We'd have Apollinarius who denied Christ's perfect and complete manhood. We had Nestorius who denied the unity of the person of Christ. And Eutychius, just to name but a few, who denied the distinction between Christ's two natures. We could go on and on and on and on. That's just in the church. Don't be deceived, he says, with empty words which endanger the church and endanger you, dear Christian. But then there's also society, the world around each one of us. All the philosophies and religions of life, the one thing they have in common is their great design is to justify to man that he may live how he pleases. That's ultimately what it's about. It's either self-salvation by some means of works, or it's a denial of God completely in order that they might live how they please. Paul says to the Ephesians, he says to us, don't yield to these empty words. Don't give space to these empty words. Be discerning. Remain steadfast. Discern what is true. And the reason he appends to this command is found there also in verse 6 and 7. The command is this, let no one deceive you. Do not be deceived. The negative command, do not be deceived with empty words. Here's the reason for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Notice that. Scripture has a name for these kinds of people who spread these falsehoods and lies. They are sons of disobedience. In spreading these falsehoods, they're denying God, and Paul says they will face his wrath. Verse 7 and verse 8 repeats the same idea. There's a command. Do not become partners with them. You could exegete that in a million ways. Do not become partners with the sons of disobedience. Form no alliance with them. Why? For at one time, verse 8, here's your reason, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Be what you are. Walk as children of the light, not what you used to be. You cannot have a partnership, Paul is saying, with darkness. It simply won't work. The Ephesians, the Christian, is a child of the light in the Lord, union with Christ language again. As such, you see, we have to take the character of God on ourselves. We are to be imitators of God. What is God? God is light. 
and in him there is no darkness at all. Consequently, we must, because we are light, we must walk as children of the light. Notice how Paul extends his argument into verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He's saying your children of the light walk as in the light, and here's what it looks like. Bearing fruits of obedience is reflected in that which is good and right and true. Our conduct ought to accentuate these things before the people with whom we have dealings. Our conduct ought to be a testimony to that which is good and right and true. Ask yourself, dear friend, in church, in your families, in your friendships, broadly in society, in your places of work, are you known as people who promote that which is good and right and true? Even if those about you are not prepared to admit what is good and right and true, they can still see something is different about you because of the way you conduct yourself. Paul is saying you ought to be as a Christian identifiably different. And he's made that statement implicitly many times over. He says, do not walk as the Gentiles do. You're Christian. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. Be different to them. Look different to them. Conduct yourself differently to them. And he follows verse 9 with verse 10, returning to an idea we saw last week, the idea of pleasing the Lord. And he says another positive command, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We saw this last week, did we not? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve him, please him. Discern what is pleasing to him. Do what is pleasing to him, regardless of your circumstances. And I know that's very easy to say. All our circumstances are complex. Work, family, church, society, so on. We have complex relationships. Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then, dear friend, do it. So we need to ask ourselves, do we not, what what are the deceitful ideas, the empty words that are flying round about us all the time, perhaps even we might have given credence to in our own thinking, our own lives? There are too many to name, of course, but let's just think a few. There's the woke agenda, whatever that might be, how you define it. There's the failures of the Me Too movement. Often seen in young women, there's body image issues, the lies associated with that put upon us by social media. Or for young men, the extremes of the radical patriarchy movement where we see cropping up in the church at times. Perhaps some of us are giving room to loose living or loose talk. Perhaps we're watching and listening things that pollute what is good and right and true. Perhaps some of us are making close friends with the wrong people. 
do not be partners with them. If it doesn't mean you shouldn't have close friendships with unbelievers, what does it mean? Do we give room in our thinking to the common theme found in society which associates any form of authority with abuse? That's called critical theory, by the way. The list goes on. I'm sure you could add to them. Paul is saying this. Know what is good. Know what is right. Know what is true. Those things are not subjective in their definition. They derive their meaning from God and his word. And when we can know what is good and right and true, we'll stop ourselves then from falling into the third category, verse 11, uh, of unfruitful works of darkness. Paul's saying, live righteously, live in an holy manner. Do not, he says, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Two commands there, take no part, Negatively, do not enter those works of darkness. Rather, positively, expose them. Now, it's interesting here, is it not, that the emphasis is not upon the doers of the unfruitful works, but it's upon the unfruitful works themselves. The people are not mentioned here in this verse. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. The works are the matter before us. We know, of course, to expose those deeds is to expose the people who do those deeds, of course. We've seen it already in verse 3, 4, and 5. But I think there's something to Paul's wording here and the context which leads us in a particular direction as we understand this concept of exposing the unfruitful work of darkness. What is Paul's stated purpose, I think, in referring to the works and not the doers of the works? Paul's stated purpose is found in verse 14. He says, have no part of unfruitful works, but rather expose them to what end? He says, verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What's he saying? You see, he's talking about Christians being light, light exposing works of darkness, and then he quotes from, from the prophets, several prophets put together. You're not going to find that quote in the Old Testament, by the way. It's several prophets putting together. He says, expose those works of darkness to what end? That the practitioner of the work of darkness, the sleeper, might be awakened. That they might arise from the dead and that the glory of Christ would shine upon them. It's redemption. It's salvation. That's what Paul has in mind when he speaks about exposing the works of darkness. He says when the Christian lives as he or she should in society, they are light by definition. They will expose works of darkness. And to use the language of our Lord Jesus Christ, men will see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Obedience, one of the purposes of obedience, is unto the salvation of those who are about you, dear Christian. In your workplaces, when you don't laugh at the dirty joke, or you don't take the Lord's name in vain, or you stand firm when you are called to stand firm, it's not just going to produce persecution and ridicule for you. Paul says one of the purposes of that that holy living is that some might see your holiness and your righteousness and inquire of the hope that dwells within you. Using the most remarkable language, because of your good works, that's not the formal cause, of course, it's the instrument, but through your good works, the sleeper will awake, the dead will be raised spiritually, and Christ will shine upon them. God will save them. Because of your example, he used you to bring people into his kingdom. Because in good works, sin is revealed. In light, the darkness is revealed. It's made visible, verse 14. And seeing their wickedness, they might turn from their sin under Christ. Do you see how much resides, or rides rather, upon your Christian living? It could be the instrument that God uses to bring a sinner unto saving faith in his Son. The sleeper could be awakened through your example. The spiritual dead could be raised from that death by looking at you. Christ might work in them. Friends, I hope we're beginning to see more and more through Pastor Ocken's preaching and through this passage tonight, the dynamics of Christian living. It is God who works in us both to will and do his good pleasure. We do good works because we are thankful. We do good works unto his glory. We are to imitate him. We are to please God. We are to build up the brethren. We are to serve the church by our good works. And now we see there is an evangelistic and redemptive element to us living an upright life. We all struggle with Christian living in one area or another. But consider, dear friends, these great motivations to you to go back into your classroom, into your home, your workplace, wherever you might be this week. These great motivations. Your holiness pleases God. Your holiness builds up the brethren here present. Your holiness could lead to the salvation of the lost. Dear friend, if you're here tonight and you're not trusting in Christ, consider the warnings of this text. Paul says you're a son or daughter of disobedience. The wrath of God rests upon you. It will be revealed assuredly as your works will be revealed. We urge you, dear friend,
Awake from your sleep. Arise from your spiritual death and bask in the light of Christ that he will shine upon you. Forsake your sin. Repent. Entrust yourself to Christ Jesus. Join the kingdom of light that you too might be a light unto others. Let's pray. Lord God, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. Oh, how good you are, and how great is our salvation. Lord, teach us your ways, O Lord, teach us your way. Grant us to have a deeper, a greater, a wider understanding of your wonderful work in each one of us. May we look to you, Lord God. May we look to you, Christ, daily. May we look to you, Spirit. Work in us, we plead. Help us to put sin to death. Help us to live holy lives. But even above that, help us to see you in all your blessedness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen.